So open up your Bible, if you would, to Joshua chapter 4. Um, in our previous two studies, we looked at uh, uh, the river, Jordan River crossing. And uh, today we're going to look at, uh, in chapter 4, the memorializing of this tremendous event. And um, I'd like to read the entire chapter, and uh, then we will we'll proceed. So Joshua chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass, when all the people were clean passed over Jordan, that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe a man, and command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priests' feet stood firm, twelve stones, and ye shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel, out of every tribe a man. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan, and take ye up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel." that this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? That ye shall answer them, The waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over Jordan, the waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. The children of Israel did so as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of Jordan as the Lord spake unto Joshua according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel and carried them over with them unto the place where they lodged and laid them down there. Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests which bear the Ark of the Covenant stood And there they are unto this day. For the priests which bear the ark stood in the midst of Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to speak unto the people according to all that Moses commanded Joshua and the people hasted and passed over. And it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over that the ark of the Lord passed over and the priests in the presence of the people And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the children of Israel as Moses spake unto them. About 40,000 prepared for war passed over before the Lord unto battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they feared him as they feared Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Command the priests that bear the ark of the testimony that they come up out of Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come ye up out of Jordan. It came to pass when the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord were come up out of the midst of Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up unto the dry land, that the waters of Jordan returned unto their place and flowed over all his banks as they did before. 
The people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal, in the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then ye shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we were gone over. That all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that she might fear the Lord your God forever. The Jordan River crossing, again, number three, we're going to look at the memorializing of this event. If I could just very briefly review our last session together, and that will help us return to the context um, of, this, of this account. Uh, last time we were together, we looked at the actual event of the people crossing over the river. And we noticed five aspects of God himself who did this work for them. First of all, we saw the sovereign God declaring. This was the first time in the Bible that this name of God, the Lord of all the earth, is used. And the declaration was that he was sovereign, that he was God over all the earth. And in the immediate context of the Jordan River crossing, we saw that God has a plan for his people. That includes the timing. Uh, that includes how he will work things out. And he executed his power according to his sovereignty. Secondly, under this heading of the sovereign God declaring that he's the Lord of all the earth, we saw that he had the power to drive the Jordan River back 18 to 20 miles uphill all the way to Adam. This river of death was driven back to Adam. And you recall the river had this tremendous descent and it was overflowing its banks at the time. So this was a, a tremendous amount of water that the sovereign God declared he was creator of and over and he could push it back. Fourth, uh, thirdly, we saw that the sovereign God was preeminent. God was preeminent in this entire event. And lastly, the sovereign God declaring that he was sovereign over those seven nations that he drove out, that he might bring the people in. God is not just the God of the believer. God is God over all the earth. And it's his prerogative. If he wants to give the promised land to, to the nation of Israel at this time, that's his prerogative because he is God. Secondly, we saw the living God abiding. A, a tremendous truth that God would dwell in the midst of his people. It's, it's a profound truth. It's a monumental truth. Um, it, it, for us, we know that God dwells in our heart by faith. We know that, that, that the Holy Spirit, in some spiritual, mystical way, lives inside us and, and is doing a work within us. Uh, uh, in this account, uh, we, we focus primarily on the Ark of the Covenant in the midst of God's people. 
the Ark of the Covenant, the actual and real presence of God himself, and the Ark of the Covenant also, the symbolic uh, representative of presence of God in the midst of his people. And you'll recall we looked briefly at Hebrews that focused on those three contents of the Ark that focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Primary three divine offices that he executes on behalf of his people, prophet, priest, and king. Thirdly, we saw the omnipotent God performing. Again, we saw just tremendous power of God, dramatic. Um, And he was, it was so dramatic that he was going to uh, instruct the people in in our chapter, of course, to memorialize this event. His, His supreme power. The fact that God does all his holy will and none can stay his hand. The fact that that God created physics and gravity and, and all these things, and God can, can, who has infinite, limitless power, can do what he will to accomplish his holy will. And we, we drew a New Testament application to the power of God to say, God can do the miracle today of taking out a heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. The miracle of grace is no less um, insignificant or no less important or, or large. Fourthly, the exalted God manifesting. God manifested his sufficiency in the light of man's insufficiency. The people of Israel could not have crossed over the Jordan unless God intervened. And the God who came to help them was not the weak God of today that is waiting on man's effort or waiting on, on man's action or the God who is is forged in our imagination. It's, it's, it's the true God, the God of the Bible. And then fifthly, we looked at the faithful God finishing. God finished the work. The Ark of the Covenant did not come out of the Jordan until every single last person was across. And remember, they had cattle and livestock. They had possessions. They had tents. They had their little ones. Everybody got across. God finished the work. So today I'd like to look at these memorials. These memorials that the Jordan River crossing would not be complete until it was sufficiently memorialized. And we're going to look at, first of all, the memorials described. Secondly, the memorials denoted, that is what they indicate. Thirdly, the memorials duality and doctrine. And then we're going to make a couple of, a couple of applications And try to understand the memorials. This is actually where I started. So um, everything up to this point is very necessary to understand and make a foundation. But, but I'm, I'm really interested in these memorials, and they speak a tremendous truth to the New Testament say today. So first of all, the memorials described. If, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that, that of, uh, often there were Altars built and drink offerings poured out and, and memorials built and, and Ebenezer's um, that often in scripture were used to signify a, a great deliverance um, in, in recognition of a need to worship. Um, there was some impression upon the one who built or offered these memorials. Um, Abraham, uh, 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 Jacob, uh, others, as you know, built these kinds of things. But 
very, very less frequent, does God himself say, build a memorial or build an altar or pour out a, a, a drink offering for me? God himself here, as we read, gave instruction for his people to build memorials. And not just one memorial. He said, build two memorials. This river crossing was was a very profound and pivotal moment in Israel's history. Again, we cannot overestimate its value and its importance, not just in the Old Testament, but for us as well. And, and, and this importance, again, God is, is saying to, to construct two memorials. And the immediate question in my mind was, when I had revisited this passage a while back, why two? Why two? The Bible describes these two memorials. They have their basis in what God did, what God did for his people, the Ark of the Covenant being predominant and singularly responsible for driving the Jordan River back. The Ark of the Covenant goes into Jordan. As the priest's feet who are bearing the Ark step into Jordan, the waters are cut off. Again, they're backed up all the way to Adam, between 18 and perhaps 20 miles away. The Ark of the Covenant stays in that river bottom, in that very spot, until everybody gets across. Everybody gets passed. Then the word is given. The Ark of the Covenant leaves the Jordan and the waters return, again, overflowing their banks. And God, through Joshua, gives the command to memorialize this event with these 12 men chosen, one from each tribe, taking out these these 12 stones, every man for his tribe, one stone, and carry them over across the river. God had said that they were to take up a stone upon their shoulder and that these would be built for a memorial for the children of Israel forever. And so the people followed, they obeyed, they they did what God had commanded. They laid the stones down in that place and then Joshua would, would then pitch them in Gilgal. These stones were not to have been left flat or laying around the ground, um, but, but Joshua was instructed to pitch them. That's a word that means to raise up or to stand up or to, to set up. Uh, it's the same word that, that, that the Bible uses to raise up the tabernacle of God. So this is the first memorial. Stones taken out of this river of death taken into the promised land and set up. The second memorial, Joshua sets up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the, the, the feet of the priests that bear the ark were. And he sets up this memorial of 12 stones, again, every stone for a representative of a tribe. So we have these two memorial uh, pillars of 12 stones each. One is in, left in that uh, Jordan River. The other one was taken out of the Jordan River and carried over to the promised land. These memorials point 
to what God has done, God's working of this miracle. That's, that's these, these two memorials. Secondly, the memorials denoted. That is, what they indicated. Joshua says in verse 7 and verse 23 that these memorials would lead people to ask questions. And we're going to revisit verse 7 and verse 23 shortly, but, but in essence, a miracle was performed and these memorials would lead to questions that, um, you know, what do these stones mean? And there would be an, under, an opportunity, an understanding of, of God's working. Now, now, previously we had said that the Jordan River does signify death, but it was not speaking about our physical death, our natural death that will, will result us uh, as being ushered into heaven, the, pro- the promised land, but rather this, this Jordan River crossing in, in general, uh, this, this Jordan River talked about that, that growth in grace whereby um, we begin to understand by way of Christian experience and growth and blessedness, the, the promised land. The Jordan River, we said, points to the practical application of death to self. That knowledge where we're going on in the knowledge of Lord, in the experience of the Lord, in the grace of the Lord, where we really begin to understand, which we did not understand on the first day we were saved, what it means that we no longer live unto ourselves, but we live unto the Lord. Um, when, when the cross of Christ is applied to us in a subjective way, remember we said, we quoted many times Deuteronomy 6, verse 23, God brought us out that he might bring us in. God brought us out that he might bring us in. If the Red Sea deliverance points to the substitutionary death and and the positional identification of the believer's redemption in Christ, to cross the Jordan River, we have that that personal experimental identification with with Christ in his death and his resurrection. The difference between the Red Sea and the Jordan as types or pictures or shadows are as vast as the difference between the objective side of the cross and the subjective side of the cross. It's as different as being positionally redeemed and then on a practical sense, a day-to-day living where we're in this promised land and we, there's warfare and there's idolatry to, to tear down. Uh, there was land to gain. There was a temple to build. And these two memorials speak to, to this reality. And they memorialize where, in fact, you are as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The ark, that representative uh, uh, item that talked about the real and the symbolic presence of God, of Jesus Christ, going down into the waters of Jordan, show for us or typify for us, picture for us, the Lord Jesus Christ going down into the waters of death, the death of the cross, 
He has destroyed the power of death. He has destroyed the devil. He has provided a way for his people to get into the promised land. He stopped the waters of death all the way back to Adam. The ark, when it's finished its work, is then removed from the Jordan and it was brought up to the other side. He went down into death for us. We are buried with him by baptism into his death. And then, like as Christ was raised up from the dead, the Ark of the Covenant came over to the promised land by the glory of the Father. Even so, we should walk in newness of life. In both cases, these memorials of these 12 stones represent the believers. These 12 stones that were buried under the waters as the waters came back, the waters of death, show us our place as being crucified with Christ. And the 12 stones set up on the other side show the fact that we have been risen with him. Romans 6 and verse 11 says, Likewise, reckon yourselves also to be dead indeed to sin, which he accomplished through the cross, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. To believe this Christian doctrine that we have been crucified with Christ, but then we're also raised with him, is just as impossible as it was for Israel to cross the Jordan River. So the believer is identified with Jesus Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. And these two memorials, you see why there had to be two. It's not just that we are crucified with Christ. We're, we're in the river of death. But then we have to be brought over to the promised land. We have to be raised up in newness of life. And both of these memorials, if I could put it this way, are there unto this day, speaking of this great truth. Know you not that as many of you as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? There's no water here in Romans. He's talking about that spiritual death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was also raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Here's that Practical or that subjective application of the cross to us as newborn believers, how we are supposed to live um, um, in the promised land even before we get to heaven. Just as we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, that's the first memorial, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection, there's the second memorial, knowing this, that the old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that we should henceforth no longer serve sin. And to get the resurrection, Ephesians 2, verse 6, he has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this first memorial comprised of these 12 large stones that were taken from the bottom of the river and placed in the promised land, the west side of the Jordan, that's us. We were, we were dead. We were under the wrath of God, under judgment. But the ark, the Lord Jesus Christ has done his work so we can be rescued from the river bottom, the river bottom of death and placed in the promised land. Our identification with his resurrection 
The second memorial commemorating this event was built by Joshua, who took the 12 stones outside of the river and constructed the monument in the river. And that's our identification with his death. I think in our first message, I asked the question, just from an application standpoint, what is your Jordan River? What prohibits us from living in the promised land? And and in reality, this is our Jordan River. We're identified with him in his death and we're identified with him in his resurrection. So that's what these memorials denote. That's what they instruct us of. Thirdly, the memorial's duality and doctrine. Now, Now I want to go a step further. The duality of these two tremendous memorials point to a doctrine that is really unbelievable. It's, it's amazing. These two, the duality of being identified with Christ in his death and in his resurrection speak about another doctrine. What is that doctrine? If you have been united with him in his death, if you have been united genuinely with him in his resurrection, the scripture says there is a tremendous doctrine that that further develops. And it's, it's simply this. It's, it's union with Christ. Union with Christ. He has chosen us In him. In him. In him from before the foundation of the world. And union with Christ encompasses every aspect of our redemption, of our life. Theologians have to call it the the mystical union. The mystical spiritual union because we just cannot simply wrap our head around the fact that we were joined to Christ from before the foundation of the world. This doctrine is implied in Scripture. It's directly stated in Scripture. Jesus prayed in John 17, I in them and thou in me, that they might be made perfect in one. The New Testament is always using these phrases with Christ or in Christ that instruction about the vine and the branches, Jesus said in John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. Christ is in us and we are in him. So identification with Christ in his death, the first memorial, identification with Christ in his resurrection, that second memorial, then even goes further 
Paul put it this way, and uh, Brother Dennis read the scripture at the opening of our service. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul uses eight personal pronouns in this one verse. Eight is the number, if it has a spiritual significance, eight is the number of resurrection. Eight personal pronouns to show the reality that it's no longer him that lives, but Christ lives in him. This is not, union with Christ is not a sentiment. It's not a metaphor or illustration, even though the Bible uses imagery to speak about it. Union with Christ is not talking about something else, like justification or sanctification or any other benefit. It includes these and and more. By virtue of union with Christ, you have been united with him in his death. You are united with him in his resurrection. We are resurrected or raised with Christ. You are united with him in his ascension. The Bible says we have been raised with him. You are united with him in his heavenly session. We sit with him in heavenly places in Christ so that our life is hid with Christ in God. You are united with him. He says when he returns, we will appear with him in glory. And, and the objective theological truth of being united to Christ should fill out our subjective experience, our subjective life, what it means to be a believer. And union with Christ is the essential truth of our new and our eternal existence in, in a way that, that certainly transcends our finite understanding, but In reality, spiritually, believers, you are united to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just these component parts we mentioned, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his session, his return. But you are united with him. I'd like to read, I don't like to read... In this case, I would like to read just a little couple of of sentences from John Murray, uh, his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. He says this, the father elected from eternity, but he elected in Christ. We are not able to understand all that is involved, but the fact is plain enough that there was no election of the Father apart from Christ. Now, listen to what he says. And what that means is that those who will be saved were never, not even, contemplated by the Father apart from union with Christ. They were chosen in Christ. He goes on to say, that the believer, because he was chosen in Christ, that you are never thought of by the Father without him also simultaneously thinking about his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he doesn't think about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from thinking about you. That is how far union with Christ goes. Why were you justified? And why do you have union with Christ? You see, you were not united to Christ because you were justified. Let me say that again. It's not as though you were justified and so then you were united to Christ. It's the other way around. From before the foundation of the world, you were united to Christ and so then you were justified. And then you were sanctified. And then all of these other. We are justified because we have been united to Christ, who he himself is our justification. I think, I believe the duality of these two stone memorials, when we see their interconnectedness, remind us of this doctrine of, of union with Christ. Yes, we've been united in his death. We've been united in his resurrection. And that's speaking to us about something that is really, really deep, that we have union with Christ. I think that union with Christ actually was, is also brought out in the passage that we read. Do you remember I said I was going to return to verse 7 and verse 23? These memorials would be built, and this question would come up. What do you mean by these stones? If you paid attention, there's two different answers given. In verse 7, it says, the waters of the Jordan were cut off from before the Ark of the Covenant. Simple enough. But in verse 23, the waters of the Jordan were cut off from before the people. Which is it? Were the waters cut off from before the Ark? Or were they cut off from before the people? It's both, right? It's both because we are in Christ. Do you see that? Two different answers, but it's the same answer. The waters were cut off from the ark, and he might as well say they were also cut off from us because we are in Christ. Well, let me close with a couple of applications to this, to this tremendous truth, this tremendous truth. First of all, you know, we really are forgetful people. And throughout the Bible, God reminds us that, you know, God orders this this memorial as as a solemn reminder of how prone we are to forget the impact of God and his works. Again, in Psalm 78, the people forgot all of God's works. Think about the disciples, the apostles. Um, The Lord Jesus Christ had to remind his his apostles. They they had forgotten that he had done these miracles of multiplying loaves and fishes. He said, you don't remember. He had just not too long previously multiplied five loaves to feed 5,000. And then on another occasion, seven loaves to feed 4,000. He said, "You, you forget. We should have memorials in our mind to remember the full impact of our salvation. It's not just salvation from sins or salvation from hell. Um, When we think about the Lord, when we meditate, when we pray, when we read the scripture, when we come to worship private or or worship uh, private or corporate, um, 
we have to remember the reality of, of God is reminding us, he's signifying, he's teaching us the reality. We, we were baptized into the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we were raised with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper uh, soon, I believe. And that is that memorial that, that Jesus had to enact so that we would remember his death, not just the fact that it occurred in history, but what that really means. Secondly, let's remember that God has memorialized all of his works in the scripture. This book is a memorial that will last through all of time. The sense of Joshua's memorials were that those stones uh, would, would by just the fact that they were large stones, there was this immutability, there was this strength, there was this foundation that would be there always reminding. We have access to every memorial, every significant thing that God wants us to know about in the scriptures. The scriptures are like God's museum, if I could put it that way, where we go in and we can see all these tremendous displays of every work that God has done. We should stop as we read the scripture, like those, those ones who were to see those memorials and say, what does that mean? When we're in the scripture, we should not just read and keep on reading. We should stop and say, well, I wonder what that means. Why were there two memorials? Why this? Why that? Why did Rahab hang out a scarlet a piece of cloth as a symbol that she should be taken care of? Go down the list. All these things. Thirdly, as we consider God's memorials, it ought not to be third-hand recollection. It ought not to be third-hand recollection. John said that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled the word of life. Our testimony of union with Christ, of salvation, of of being buried with him in death and, and raised in newness of life, it should be firsthand knowledge, not third-hand recollection. It's interesting here at the Jordan River um, where our Lord was baptized. The Pharisees and the, the, the Sadducees came out to John's baptism and they wanted to trace a lineage back to Abraham as their pedigree of faith. That is what got them into the kingdom of God. And Jesus said to them, don't think to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. But I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. He was pointing to those very same memorial stones that Joshua spoke of. Because in John chapter 1 and verse 28, it says that Jesus was baptized at Bethabara beyond Jordan. Bethabara means the house of passage. That's that's where Israel passed through to come into the promised land. And Jesus was saying, don't use your pedigree or your ancestry as your proof that you are in the kingdom of God. 
Because I am able of these stones to do what? Raise up children. And that's what these stones represented. Again, our identification in his death and burial, our identification with his life. And each of these memorials taken together remind us of that tremendous truth that we are in Christ. Of course, the obvious question that we ask is, is what side of the Jordan River are we on today? God has, has in his word shown to us the tremendous truth of what he has done. He has fully, finally, and, and completely finished the work that had to be done. And we praise him for that. Well, let's close our study with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. More importantly today, as we reflect upon this tremendous truth that these memorials point to, and we see how in, in time past you, you raised up two more memorials that spoke about what you would do through the Lord Jesus Christ, who did in fact go down into the waters of death for a people, for his own. And it wasn't until everyone got safely across that he came up out of that. We thank you for that, that work that he did. We thank you for the reality that we can know, even in this life, though we are not physically with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, yet in a spiritual sense, in a real sense, we've been raised up with him and we can walk in newness of life. We pray, O oh God, that this tremendous doctrinal truth would be applied to our hearts and truly conform us to the image of your Son. And we pray as well, Father, that as they further speak to what it means to be united to Christ, that, Father, that as well would be that, that, that very doctrine, that very truth that would um, cause us to walk circumspectly and above the world and would enable us, Father, to further um, our growth in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.